With or without war, American society will be transformed into something different. The emergent society may be something better, a nation that sustains its framers' visions with a robust new pride, or it may be something unspeakably worse. The fourth turning will be a time of glory or ruin. Nat, Neil, thanks for having me back on. Thanks for being here. Recurring guest of honor, Adil Majid. Yeah, this is what, episode number like five or six, I think, that you've been on at least? Something like that. We're racking them up. Yeah, racking them up. Soon to be double digits because this whole series that we're doing, this crypto-ish series. <laughs> Once you complete nine episodes with us, you get a free smoothie. So <laughs> be sure to keep bringing your punch card back. No, you get it. You get an NFT. We'll mint something for you. <laughs> you get one Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. The rewards keep getting better. So <laughs> <laughs> keep talking, right? Yeah, keep going. One Bitcoin is when you land us our, our Spotify deal. That's when you get one go. Bitcoin as a reward. I don't know how well that's going for recent people who've received yeah. deals. So. Is Spotify paying podcasts yet? Can you get ad? Are they ad- placing ads or anything? Have they started turning that on? No, they've talked about it. I know they've talked about it a lot where they're like, we can personalize the ads because we know who's listening. So you don't have to say like, everybody gets like a MeUndies ad or a Blue Chew ad or whatever. You can customize right. it for like the specific audience. But they, I, at least I haven't seen that done in real life. So... We'll see. I've just heard them talk about it a lot. What would the major think ads be? It's a good question. Probably like <laughs> athletic greens, potentially, I could see. See, the, uh, the reason I wouldn't want to use their ads. Well, we don't get is, to choose. It would just Exactly. Be, they would probably yeah. play something like Blinkist and then oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> we'd be on yep. the episode making fun of what a <laughs> shit product it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would, it would probably be, like, be something like that. Yeah. Remember that BuzzFeed? article thing a few years ago this is what started the whole demonetizing movement that buzzfeed article where they were showing gillette ads on flat earther videos or something so yeah buzzfeed did this whole report and they said do you know where your ad dollars are going on youtube and it had these big company brands next to videos about like flat earth and like kkk propaganda and stuff like that and that was when YouTube started saying, oh, okay, we need to start moderating where ads are placed. It, it would <laughs> be a much a much less dire version of that on Spotify, where they start putting ads and then the, the podcasters are making fun of the products without knowing that they're being yeah. advertised <laughs> right before. <laughs> I'm surprised you named Blinkist as the target of your ire. Oh, no, we've talked about that before. I would yeah, put uh, Oatly front and center. Oatly, oh, oh, that'd yeah. be amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think of what, what would episode? be likely to be placed on a Made You Think ad. That, <laughs> you that know what, though? I bet, I bet there's an overlap of, uh, like, I don't know how deep of, a, of an overlap there would be, but just given, like, where I think our listeners are, let's say, like, the U.S.-centric ones, versus where Oatly's customers are, I would imagine there are a good number of listeners who are Oatly customers. Probably. And if you are, go read Nat's article about it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put it in the show. I, I was, I was kind of, a, I was, I was a few years ahead of ahead of my time on that one. The oh, yeah. consensus yeah. has shifted quite a bit now. It, it makes me happy whenever they tweet stuff and have a, a, a semi angry mob just descend on them for <laughs> their terrible products. Cancel culture is great when you like agree with the thing. That's yeah, yeah, I, I'm canceled. very in favor of cancel culture that's on my side. It's, right, of course, it's awesome. Yeah, that's the way these things work. 
<laughs> I was really surprised by how they called out cancel culture in the book in the 90s as the mechanism by which millennials will force consensus building. Adil yeah, always yeah. bringing us back. <laughs> Wait, are we talking about a book today? this? Yeah, we got several comments last time that Adil was the one kind of keeping us on track during Dictator's yeah. Handbook. So I'm not going to do it this time. I no, no, do it this time. I, I, got, <laughs> I got several people who really liked it. They were like, you guys need a third person to basically like keep you on track. <laughs> we haven't even said the name of the book yet, so Adil is uh, shirking his duties here. But oh, sorry. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're here to discuss The Fourth Turning by William Strauss and Neil Howe. Have you guys read this book before we did it for this podcast or was yeah, it the first time reading it? I read it in late 2020. And what's amazing is when I read it then and I like shared some of the ideas with people, because it blew my mind then, but I, back then I viewed it as a little bit more hokey. And then I had like two years to kind of sit on it or like a year and a half to sit on it and read it again this time. And this time, A, it seems to have entered mainstream dialogue. Like it was in that bankless email that I sent you guys. Oh, yeah. Which I did not expect to see. When I went on YouTube and just searched the title just to see what was on it, like Neil Howe has been uh, prolific. He's like all over all kinds of interviews discussing the fourth turning. Most of them are over the last five years. And then this reading felt a lot less hokey to me, just having like sat on it quietly for two year and a half. Yeah. How about you guys? Have you guys read it? I only read it in late 2020 as well, but that's because we were talking about doing an episode on it at that time. Okay. Oh, yeah, we so, were. You're right. Yeah. So I read it at that time. And then sat on it again for, you know, till now. And I, I kind of was feeling it was pretty prescient even at that time in 2020. Cause there were maybe, I don't know. It depends probably when in 2020 you'd read it. Like I read it after the election. So it was like around Christmas time, maybe between Christmas and new year's. And I remember thinking, I was like, this is looking pretty accurate here. Uh, I mean, it's, there's probably things that are not, but it's, it reminds me in a lot of ways, different theme, but the, the sort of, ahead of its time idea is similar to sovereign individual. That's what I was going to say. I, I remember I didn't finish it the first time I started it. I got bored and fell off after the intro, but <laughs> I, I got through the, the intro parts and had a similar feeling where it felt like reading sovereign individual, which was also sovereign individual might've been earlier Was sovereign individual early nineties. This was 96. Let's see. We'd have to look it up, but Reading Sovereign Individual, that was the the optimistic, the future is going to be amazing, we're all going to be sovereign individuals flying around to free states and buying things with Bitcoin and whatever. Whereas this is very, oh, the world is going to go to shit for about 20 years when <laughs> people in our generation are young and trying to enter the workforce. And if we make it through, then things will be great, but we also might blow ourselves up. So get ready. And... Uh, it, it has turned out to be kind of prescient in its own way as well. It, we'll, we'll definitely get to some of the timeline predictions in it because I think there's a super interesting discussion to be had about where we are in the, the cycle. But maybe we should start with a high-level overview of what turnings are and what this book is about. So Sovereign Individual was 97, by the way. And this was, not, oh, wow. this so was almost the same year. This was December 96. Amazing. So basically about the same time. Too funny, yeah. Huh. I wonder if the authors have spoken. Maybe. Because the, the thesis of collectivism and the communal spirit that results from a crisis, which we'll talk about, but that's the core part of the fourth turning, parts of that seem pretty 
antithetical to uh, the world laid out in so- at least as I understand the sovereign individual. I actually haven't read well, it. Well, the the way I might link them is by saying that the world of the sovereign individual is what emerges from the fourth turning crisis, where there's I guess we should we should go through the book and then we should return to that idea, yeah. but that. Yeah. That would line up the timelines kind of where sovereign individual talks. I mean, sovereign individual also talks about the breakdown of nation states and mm-hmm. moving away from these Goliath countries with centralized currencies and everyone being heavily reliant on them. But you would need an inciting event to make that transition. And so the peak climax of the fourth turning crisis could be what drives everyone to abandon the current fiat money massive government structure in favor of a more sovereign individual lifestyle and the events of a month ago might actually be what that uh or what create that inciting moment so the best way to think about the fourth turning at least uh this is sort of like the meme that i use in my head to think about it it's that good times create weak men weak men create hard times hard times create strong men and strong men create good times exactly Right. Yeah. So that's kind of the four. That's like the turnings, basically. That's the turnings. All right. So let's talk about what what the turnings are. So the there's one quotation from the book which I really love that gets to one of the core cruxes of this idea, which is where they say, over the millennia, man has developed three ways of thinking about time: chaotic, cyclical, and linear. The first was the dominant view of primitive man, the second of ancient and traditional civilizations, and the third of the modern West, especially America. And then a little bit further on, they have a line where they say, every every week we turn over the days. We go back to Sunday. Every month we turn over the count. We go back to one. Every year we turn over the months. We go back to January. But when do we turn over the years? When do we go back to zero or go back to one? And that's the one that we don't turn over because we've embraced this concept of linear time, linear progress. Things are always moving forward. And the premise of the book is that not really, right? Things are obviously moving forward, but the the years also move in seasons and they go through these four seasons, these four turnings. And the book written in 97, basically suggesting that if each of these turnings lasts for about 20 years, the next one would start around 2005 and end around 2026. And then each of these turnings has a theme, kind of going back to what Neil was saying. And I've got the descriptions right here. The first turning is a high, an upbeat era of strengthening institutions and weakening individualism, where a new civic order implants and old values regimes decay. The second turning is an awakening, a passionate era of spiritual upheaval, when the civic order comes under attack from a new values regime. The third turning is an unraveling, a downcast era of strengthening individualism and weakening institutions, when the old civic order decays and the new values regime implants. And the fourth turning is a crisis, a decisive era of secular upheaval, when the values regime propels the replacement of the old civic order with a new one. And then if we're putting these onto timelines, they say the first turning was the American high of the Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy presidencies, so kind of right after World War II. Second turning was the consciousness revolution, stretching from the mid-60s to the tax revolts of the early 1980s. 
the third turning, which they call the culture wars. I thought it was kind of interesting. We'll come back to <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, the third turning has been the culture wars, which began in the Reagan's mid-1980s and should end around the middle... I like to call them the naughties. I think you can call them the OOs or the knots. There's a lot of terms for the early or for the first decade of the 2000s. I think naughties is just fun to say. But <laughs> uh, should end around then. And then the fourth turning, the crisis era, would start around 2005 and go to 2026. So those are the four turnings. The thing that I found hokey when I first read this is I've seen so many weeks go from one week to the next. It goes day seven goes back to day one and repeats, and same with months and years. Never seen it for turnings, because in order to identify the full cycle, you have to get to the end of one, which is the end of a human life. So the mm-hmm. 80 yeah. years is basically you have four sections of a human life, and the four sections are the four phases of your life that you go through. And they match with those four turnings. So the high awakening, unraveling, and crisis for a generation will map from their early childhood, young adulthood, midlife, and elderhood. And then from there, they either pass away or sort of exit the social or political scene. And the turnings correspond to how these people move from one phase to the next. So we've lived through an unraveling and a crisis, have yet to see a reset. I think that's why most people don't zoom out to this level, right? It's, yeah. it's, you can't see it. The last generation to see this were the GIs because they saw the crisis and the high. And that's where the reset takes place between the fourth turning and the first. Yeah, we, we haven't seen that reset. Yeah, what I was going to say is the only way you could get a perspective on transitioning from a crisis into a, a first turning. Uh, what's the first one called again? A, a high. A high, yeah. The only way we would be able to draw on that experience is if we talked to somebody who was in their late 80s, probably. Because they would have to remember World War II. And then they would have to remember the period that came after that. I guess they'd have to be in their 90s, right? Because they yeah. would have to have been bored in like 35, maybe. So the, the number of people you can draw on for that experience is getting pretty slim. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like the it becomes like a generational memory thing, right? It's like maybe your grandparents can talk about the last time there was a cycle, like the same stage of the cycle, I guess, right? It's probably not something your parents would have lived through. And that's one of those things where it's like, the old timers would talk about this and everyone would just, you just like dismiss it. Right. Cause it's like, Oh yeah, that was back then. But, and that doesn't happen anymore, but it's like, it does happen. It's just, you're not in that part of the cycle or you're about to enter it. And you're just dismissing something that is definitely going to happen to you. And I guess like zooming out, there's another, so this is like, you're talking about like the weeks and months thing. And then the years thing resets over a lifetime. I think that's absolutely correct. And then there's like even bigger zoom out, like resets, which are, which might be like ice age cycles or like climate cycles or things like that, which are like civilization level memory that you would need. Right. It's like maybe ancient myths would talk about something that would be happening now, 10,000 years later, Mm -hmm. right. Or 15,000 years later. And it's like an oral tradition that was like passed down. And that's the only way you would know what that previous cycle was like. The ice age cycles are the only ones that come to mind, but I'm sure, I'm sure there's like planetary cycles and like, sun cycles and like all sorts of other stuff that you know might apply but it's just like interesting that these cycles are they are definitely a theme of how the world kind of works and we only see the like micro cycles because that's our perspective on time we talked about this last episode or the episode before but this idea of 
death and rebirth as this constant cycle and you know very strong in like hindu mythology this was the whole like mayan calendar 2005 thing too was it wasn't predicting the the end of the world in 2005 was predicting the end of a, a great cycle right and that seems to be such a common theme throughout religion and history and i guess maybe the abrahamic or at least the christian interpretation of abrahamic religion is a little different in the sense that like the important, although I guess it's kind of the same cycle, right? Too, because it's when Christ returns, then what the world is reborn. I mean, that's kind of its own version of the cyclicality, right? But I might be stretching a little bit. Yeah, Christian conception of time would be linear. <clears throat> yeah, that'd be more linear. Heaven, and you you never return to the Garden of Eden. We've left the Garden of Eden. Eden, the terminal note is actually don't know what a Christian would call it. But let's just call it heaven. And it's yeah, it's just one journey in one direction which does not repeat. But yeah, I think because the West is so tangled with Christian belief, it's hard to separate where one begins and where the other ends. Right. Uh, and modernity is so separated from cycles of nature. It's like in the winter, you turn on the heater and in the summer, you turn on the AC. It's like you have literally no conception of what's going on outside. I love this quotation from the book. Before people prized the ability to divine nature's energy and use it, Today, we prize the ability to defy nature's energy and overcome it, right? Instead of accepting the cycles and seasons of the year and time, we try to fight them to create this like linear constancy throughout uh, the year, regardless of what else is going on in the world around us. At least for the last generational archetype, which maybe we should talk a little bit about those archetypes, because one of yeah. the traits of what is to come is sort of a return to nature, which and a return to like more traditional values, which... More traditional values is kind of a politically loaded phrase, but uh, like family structure and so on, the non-political version of that phrase, which we are seeing a little bit with our generation, right? You can oh, see totally. Oh, like yeah. yeah. I even thought it was really interesting. Uh, I, I mean, maybe this is a little bit out of order, but they were talking about uh, trends in substance abuse and, and alcohol. So yeah. I'll just read. I'll just read that part because I thought it was so interesting because we see exactly that, I feel like, in our generation now. So it says, uh, this is from the book, trends in substance abuse and related pathologies mirror and slightly precede these crime trends. In fact, indicators of per capita alcohol consumption follow an astoundingly regular cycle. They begin rising late in a high, peak near the end of the awakening, and then begin a decline during the unraveling and growing public disapproval. And I feel like our gen the way our generation treats alcohol is very, very different than at least the previous generations that we grew up with. I, I don't know about the previous turning, right? The previous cycle, but with our, our parents and grandparents generation, I feel like versus how people our age treat alcohol, it's a very different perspective. Yeah, each generation is a mirror of the generation that raised it. So if you think of a four, four generations per cycle, you have, so actually let's talk through these. So the four generations have archetypes and the archetypes are, first you have prophets, and a prophet is born in a, in a high. Uh, and they're sort of a, they're critically important in a crisis. They are, uh, well, actually, we'll get into the descriptions in a minute. But you have prophets who are born in a high. And there are certain things they take for granted as a result of being born in a high. right? So they're raised by people who survived the crisis. So they have a sense firsthand, uh, sorry, secondhand, of what it was like going through that transition. And they have embedded in these communal values. Uh, then prophets uh, are followed by nomads. And nomads are born in an awakening. And because generations are 20-year cycles, nomads are the children of the folks who survived the crisis 
uh, in the previous cycle, right? So you have to go back two generations to well, find no, the parent. Nomad would be the children Our, of people who were growing up during the crisis. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I, so I, yeah, I think yeah, if we yeah. map this onto actual generations, it's a little bit easier. So the the prophets would be like current. Well, actually, let's work it back. So artists are Gen Z, right? So they're the ones yep. who were kind of like born in the early noughties and are growing up during this crisis era. Our generation, millennials, are the hero generation, right? And then the ones who like might be our parents, but are probably a bit younger than our parents would be the nomads, which are like... like uh, Gen with, X or something? Yeah, yeah, Gen X, silent generation, right? Or no, silent generation is different, is it? Yep. Gen X. Gen X or 13 yeah. 13 years, that's right. And then the, the prophets are boomers who... Yep were born in the post-World War II high. Yep. So in order, you go from prophet to nomad to hero to artist. Prophets give birth to uh, heroes and heroes to prophets and then nomads to artists, artists to nomads. So you kind of skip uh, each cycle. And that determines what how and Strauss call the archetypes, archetypal behaviors of each. Uh, and I think behavior actually on that, maybe do a quick side tangent. One thing I really appreciated as a common theme in the book was they don't claim any predictive power over what are the exact events that will uh, take place. Rather, they claim that these archetypes are sufficiently predictive. So the only thing we can discuss is how a population may react to whatever unknown is thrown at it. So the, un the trigger is unknown. The reaction fits a particular archetype. So you have an unknown trigger with a predictable reaction, which leads to an unknown outcome. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciated that too, because it would have been more gimmicky if if they tried to make it an exact prediction. Right. The If you want another good analogy for what to kind of glom these generational archetypes onto, I found the Star Wars analogy in the book fairly helpful for anyone who's yeah. seen Star Wars, where the, the prophet is the elder Obi-Wan Kenobi, and then the hero is Luke Skywalker, right? And kind of in between them is this Han Solo nomad character who's not, he's not really the hero, but he's like helping out and participating. He's not like the elder prophet who, you know, grew up during the high, but is still like very involved and gets to kind of like draw on both generations. This is not really a good artist character. Is there, who would be the older artist generation for us? I guess we, we wouldn't know any of them. They would have been the ones who were born pre boomers. Right. So yeah, that's silent generation, right? Yep. Well, Biden, Biden is a silent generation. Oh, is he? Yep. He's not Boomer? Yeah, actually, I guess you're right. He's, he's, like, yeah, he's not Boomer, yeah. He's 87, 88? Yeah. No, he's not 87. He's got to be. Isn't he like late 70s? Hold on. No, so Final Generation is 1928. Through he's 79. He's 79. So he's, oh, he's 1942. Okay. He was born in 40. So he's pre. I mean, he was born during World War II, I guess. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of close to the border, but yeah. the official definition of Silent is 28 through 46. So maybe he has some qualities of both. Pelosi's yeah, in there too. So my favorite. <laughs> my absolute favorite. <laughs> the generations we've seen then are you have GIs who are heroes born 1901 through 28. They fought in World War II. Then you have the silent generation, too young to have fought in World War II, but have witnessed it, so very sheltered. Uh, those are the artists. So hero and then artist, 1928 through 1946. Then we have boomers who are prophets more spiritually inclined, raised by heroes, 1946 through 64. Interesting to note with the boomers is they were born in a high, came of age in an awakening. 
So the consciousness revolution was largely a boomer-driven or con- uh, boomer-driven awakening. Then we have Gen X and then Millennials. So that kind of rounds out the groups for us. So we're heroes. We're heroes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, by the way, the it's most like millennial thing to think. That is yeah, the of course. <laughs> We're the heroes, guys. <laughs> the heroes of the story. Yeah. The world revolves around us. <laughs> I just was on the back. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so then the turnings tie into the generations. And uh, as one comes of age, they influence the next turning. Do we want to dive into any of the specific ones here? or the What I found most interesting in the book, like he talks so much about the older history which i found harder to relate to but starting yeah. with world yeah. war ii i felt like everything he said gave me something to grapple onto yeah because we're yeah, just a lot more familiar with those yeah. events yeah and and i guess as a high level you know the the reason this book is kind of interesting right now is that based on the timeline from it we we have all been in a crisis era for most of our conscious lives as people you know around the age of 30 and we should hopefully be coming out of it <laughs> pretty soon if we are not already coming out of it. And then it's this question of, okay, what does that mean for the future? What did it mean for these last 10, 20 years? And getting some context of what's happened during the past turnings is actually particularly useful for thinking about the future history for the rest of our lives, right? What is time going to look like now if we are I think there's a discussion to be had about whether we are in the downtrend or we're at the climax of the crisis. Mm-hmm. But do we want to do want to start? Let's let's start with your idea, Adil. Start with post World War II yeah. and then work up to the present. Yeah. I want to talk about what you're talking about, but I, I really like want to go there. But if we go there, we're not going back. So <laughs> I know. Yeah, we we better cover the other stuff first. Okay, so let's quickly let's quickly get through the historical context, and then we can argue <laughs> yeah. about World War Three. All right, it's 42 past the hour. Let's say 10 minutes context and off to the fun stuff. All right, let's do it. All right, marathon. How do you even describe the context? So we're going to talk about ours. So there's a, I don't even know how to pronounce this word, saculum? Yeah, I think saculum. Saculum is basically the cycle, the meta cycle of the four turnings. And it has four parts, as we've discussed. So the high is post-World War II, 1946 through 1964. And that's where you have a lot of collectivism and people are interested in the community they're interested in consensus building and individualism is at a low and the reason that individualism is at a low is individualism the positive framing of it is everyone gets to be who they are the negative framing of it is it's highlighted differences and highlighted differences leads to conflict and the generation that is in young adulthood midlife and elderhood in a high has just seen the result of such conflict and are willing to set aside differences, even if it means marginalizing certain groups in order to build consensus and have agreement uh, and minimize differences. So that's what a high looks like. So a high in 1946 through 64, anybody listening in the historical context will know like it was not a high for everybody, right? It was still pre-civil rights era, I believe pre-women's suffrage movement, but it was the mood was around consensus building and then leaving marginalized groups marginalized. And it was the 60s and then the awakening that sort of brought these groups back into the fold, which is the second turning, which is an awakening is basically challenging the morals of the previous generation and basically finding the gaps. And as a group that is now further removed from conflict, uh, only hearing about it second or third hand, they're more willing 
to put their points and put their energies towards, you know, getting everybody into the fold. And even if that means like mild amounts of conflict. I think a good way to frame it is coming out of World War II, everyone was just happy to be alive and still, you know, a country, right? It was like, okay, there's probably for a lot of people, you know, and there's probably a period where America might, you know, this might not go our way. (laughs) This might not go well. And then everybody comes home. One thing that I thought was particularly interesting here is like how birth rates cycle. So post crises, birth rates shoot up, which means that that's why we have a large baby boomer generation. And I think we will also have a large quarantine generation where there'll be like a lot more children born in the next decade than there were in the previous decade. And, you know, we'll come to that later. But so coming out of World War II, it talks about how there was this newfound optimism and affluence in American society. We invented suburbs. We were building houses. We were, you know, people were buying, or it's not quite buying cars, but like people were, you know, creating a better and better life because everyone was like happy that we survived this thing. And the, the focus was on this, like enjoying this high, you know, we did it, we succeeded. But then with that opulence and with that investment in kind of like improving quality of life creates these more stark differences amongst you know groups in society right so the people who just came out of world war 2 they were they were just happy that they survived this thing <laughs> and then they could invest in all of this stuff but then the next batch of children grew up in this high they saw all of this opulence but they saw it not being evenly distributed and to them they did not have or they didn't grow up just being happy to be alive. They grew up in this time of abundance. And then the question becomes, well, why isn't it a time of abundance for everyone, which is what drives that next stage of this awakening. And what led into, like you were saying, civil rights, suffrage, like a lot of these types of events. Actually, what is the date on suffrage? I should know this. What are the dates? I think it's earlier than we're thinking. You're talking about the women's Yeah, women's suffrage was much earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that was a lot earlier. It's it's primarily civil rights. Because yeah, that would be right at the consciousness revolution, right? 50s and 60s, yeah. So that lines up almost right on start date, 54, end date, 68. So mm-hmm. that would be, I think they say the awakening started in like 65, right? Or when was, it, it's the Kennedy assassination, right? Is the bracket? 60, 62, 63, something like that? 63, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the meta trends between the four turnings are basically you start with peak uh, kind of collectivism and optimism, and then all those things degrade to heightened individualism and pessimism. And then things come to a head. And in order to reduce chaos and start building again, you have to reset around a new set of ideals that give you optimism and collectivist energy. And then the cycle resets. So to go through the remainder of it, like relatively quickly, between the awakening and the unraveling is basically like a 40 year decline where the awakening is largely challenging the morals of the previous generation and identifying their hypocrisies. And the unraveling is those things in practice where it's basically now almost a explicit uh, attack on institutions, dismantling of institutions, distrust of institutions, and then it culminates in the crisis which is where we are now. There's a Peter Thielism that I, that I like where he talks about like 
the world of atoms and the world of bits. And he's basically saying that since the late 60s and early 70s, we just haven't invested in the world of atoms and we're just building in the world of bits. And he always uses the framing. He's like, yeah, we landed on the moon in 69 and then we went to Woodstock. And I don't know if he's read this book, but I thought that was very... I bet he has. I I bet he has. It seems like it's up his alley. But uh, I appreciated that the the book also named those two events as like landing on the moon was sort of the... The The culmination. Exactly. And then Woodstock was the kickoff for like kind of the spiritual awakening. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how so much of this is like... It's like the interplay between... Uh, and we talked about this a little bit in King Warrior, uh, Magician Lover, but it's like the psych- psychological part of this plays out on like a national level or a global level, right? It's like a lot of these things are like you when you feel optimistic, right? I feel like you invest in, in your future. You, you make different moves than you would make if you were pessimistic. And it's like the fourth turning is almost like when a critical mass of people not the fourth turning as the fourth turning, but the fourth turning book as the ideas that they're talking about. The different turnings are basically when a critical mass of people are kind of in the same psychological mind state. And then that influences how a nation decides to do things like what they invest in and how they react. Cause it's like, it's very interesting when you're talking about world war two, right? Like post world war two, there was this incredible optimism and it's like how much of the great economy and inventions and things that came out of that period just happened like because everyone like if everyone left world war ii was like fuck like this world is we're screwed now there's nukes like we're gonna die within the next like five years if that was the prevailing attitude would any of that stuff have happened i would i would argue no right right? because like how are you gonna invest in your future in the future or like be optimistic when you think you're gonna be dead in five years and i'm curious like they didn't talk all that much about nuclear weapons in this and the cold war, but like that was definitely a shadow over that same generation. It just didn't affect them the same way that I feel like we now, at least the state, the cycle that we're in, right? Like there's certain, you know, bad things of course that are on, we'll obviously get into all that, but we let that kind of, I think seep in a little bit more than at least it seems like that generation let seep in to, to their attitude. To your point, a deal, the atoms and bits, type distinction and this this changing mood and uh, treatment of resources. There's this great quotation from the chapter on the unraveling. So the third turning where they say, an un- unraveling is a natural phase of human history. Now is the time society clears away institutional detrius with the awakening over and no crisis on the horizon. An unraveling enables people to live life to the fullest, consume off the past and pursue individual ends. A third turning can be the most personally enjoyable of the secular seasons. And I think we see this conflict a lot today where millennials and maybe like younger, maybe like older Gen Z's as well are coming into this world of crazy student loan debt, not being able to get jobs, not not being able to buy houses, not feeling like they have this bright future ahead of them. Whereas the boomer generation is saying, oh, you just go to college, then you get a job and then you buy a house or like, it's easy, right? Why, Why are millennials complaining so much? And it's that conflict where they grew up in this era of abundance where their parents and the generation just before them built all these incredible things and created this incredible country off the high of post-World War II and paved the way for them to have this incredibly easy, rich, uh, very like lavish lifestyle without the same, you know, impediments. And then they 
took advantage of so much of that and created all of this kind of institutional rot that our generation has to deal with that there's it creates this strong conflict of okay you guys might have had this incredible government and this incredible financial world around you we don't have that and you're you're saying all these things should be easy when they clearly aren't and that's where you can see some of these conflicts across the generations coming in and how the era that you grew up in really affects these things right i think one of the discussions we can have is what marked the beginning of the fourth turning right i think it's either 911 or the 2008 crisis but whichever one you pick that generation grew up in a very different job and financial environment than the boomer generation did i always think yeah. about like, the idea of a 401k yeah it's by far the most boomer i mean i don't mean that pensions pensions. Yeah, pensions like even pensions. more so yeah yeah yep. just so like, like oh, yeah, you'll be loyal to a company and yeah for 40 years <laughs> they'll of, keep paying yeah. you for 30 years after you retire and you can yep. you know buy a house with like somebody did the math on this and the the way boomers were able to buy houses would be like if any of us could go into austin or sf and buy like a solid four bed for 150k and <laughs> it's like, yeah, that, that world just doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think like the, the pension thing speaks to the point of like people thought the growth would just continue forever. So they were not thinking in terms of cycles. It was just like, oh, the world will always be like this. And I think yeah. we always do that, whether things are going well or they're not going well. It feels like things will always be like this. Like that's just how our brains work. And yep. so that's just the models that they set up for that time where like, in a world where everything continues growing like this forever, these things all make sense. Like pensions are easy, right? We're going to pay you in dollars to like, we're basically going to pay you, uh, c- continue paying you, but we're going to keep growing. So that's no big deal. Like it doesn't matter. Even I as we had new employees. Yeah. There's an incredible quotation from the book for this, which I love so much. They say, a reckless naivete can be charming in a 25 year old, but not in a person twice that age. In nature, a farmer should not let corn go unharvested past its time because the rains are no longer nourishing and will now cause it to decay. Similarly, an unraveling era society must let go of old habits that made sense 20 years ago but no longer do. It's this perfect encapsulation of, okay, yeah, stuff is great. Harvest it. Don't assume that the corn will just keep growing to the moon right? yeah <laughs> these things yeah, happen in cycles yeah <laughs> well i mean you've even nat you've talked about this even in regards to like crypto and taking profits and stuff like that oh like, yeah I mean, that's actually my know, article for like, this week because it's so oh, fucking awesome. hard to do yeah <laughs> awesome nice. um one one thing that that you said a, a couple minutes ago that i just want to go back to is i would argue i would have a different crisis point like uh, a point where the unraveling starts so 9-11 is a good starts? one i think the what is it where the crisis starts, not where the unraveling yes. starts, right? Yeah, 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 where the crisis starts. So not so nine eleven is a good uh, point, and so is 08. I would actually argue it's the Iraq War, and the reason for that was I have I feel like the country started coming apart at that point, like in our lifetime. I know Vietnam people say was like incredibly divisive, but that was I feel like with nine eleven there was like a unity and. You know, in the beginning of all that, there was like, oh, we were attacked and like we got a band together. Like it felt like a country. Of course, I was in like fifth grade, so this could be all from like memory, but it felt like it was well, a country. Like people were very patriotic. Bush approval 2000- ratings were, were 80% amazing at that time. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then you get to 2003 when all this Iraq stuff starts, and there were questions even in the beginning of like, is this legit? Is this not legit? You know, and it was just I've never seen. Like then you started having like all the TV, you know, late night type like comedies type stuff going against uh, the government and going against the war, and it was like by 2005, like no one thought that war was like a good like everybody was like, oh, this is such bullshit, and that was kind of a change in the national mood where it became a lot more adversarial i feel like at that at that point in time i think this is why 911 is the inciting event because the to adil's point earlier about how the generational archetypes are what create the saculum it was the millennial and like the elder millennial response to our government's response to 911 that created sort of the seeds of the crisis right where it was, you know, it be so 9 11 happened, and we probably wouldn't have invaded the Middle East if it hadn't. Like, I think that's yeah. a fairly safe assumption. Eh, maybe. I mean, we already had the first Gulf War and stuff, so it might have just been an excuse. A deal with don't worry about this. Uh, but our generation responded to that conflict, I think, differently than past generations might have responded to like Vietnam, Korea, first Gulf War, all of that. And so that's where we saw that the crisis was starting to happen. And then you have these kind of like additional events that further deepen the, what's the right term here, resentment for the elder leadership and the existing institutions, which then I would say gets reflected in the Trump election, right? Because that reflects like a significant portion of the population's, you know, like incredible frustration with government. And then our crisis, you know, our peak climax event is either covid or it's the mm. russia ukraine conflict i think right? it has yet to come i don't think I, we've gotten there yeah i don't I, think I mean, we've gotten there I, I i think it's i think it's russia ukraine i think that's the start of the climax but maybe we'll it's see. a start but i think it's there's gonna be some it's gonna well the, i mean i think it's the, gonna the get the a previous... little more gnarly than it is right now like it's still so, not too bad at the moment well one thing that he he made very brief mention of this but i actually think it's like yeah, it's, it's a big part of my understanding or my, my personal theory on what the fourth turning for us will be, which is, so this is actually defined as the Anglo-American saculum, which is like Anglo-American cycles is the uh, strictly that part of history that he's, that he's uh, pulling these generations from and these turnings from. But he mentions that World War II was sort of a great global reset where the generational cycles across the world may have aligned. Hmm. And so as such, like, the fourth turning could actually be for our fourth turning and like our unraveling and all these things are much more global than just like Anglo-American. So I'm, I'm of the opinion kind of similar to Neil where like, I, I think the climax has yet to come mostly because it doesn't seem like a catharsis is in sight. There are these unifying things like mistrust of government, but uh, there's a unification in the problem and not the solution. And like, I, I wonder like, what, what are the possibilities for a climax? Like the ones that are predictable, one of them is Russia, Ukraine. Uh, another one is Russia blank. China, I think, is a critical one. Other options include, like, one is, as Balaji would put it, there is uh, Chinese ideology, wokist ideology, and crypto ideology as, like, what are the, as three options on the menu for catharsis. And those are global. Those are not American-specific. Yeah. Right? I think losing the dollar, like, yeah. losing dollar superiority would be a big one, right? If, like, the world goes from, like, a dollar-denominated world to whatever else the next thing is, whether that's a, a yuan denominated world, a, a some like uh, Bitcoin related world, you know, uh, denominated world, like there's all these options. There's a book, which Nat, I texted you about called the mandibles, which is a, a fictional oh, yeah. book. 
which I read about a year ago and did not actually think was all that good. And then all sorts of stuff from the book started actually happening because the book is basically basically follows like a middle class family dealing with inflation and it just like how that gets how that gets kind of crazy. So that's basically like what the book is about. And in that book, one of the things that basically the world gets fed up with is the dollar continuing to be devalued and the Fed just printing money out of nowhere. So Russia, China, India, and I believe a handful of other, like basically all the major economies that aren't part of NATO align. I think Brazil was part of that. They basically create a gold-backed currency called the Bancor, I think, a B-A-N-C-O-R. And that was like a separate currency. And they basically banned the use of dollars in their economies. So they say the dollar is essentially monopoly money. It's not legal tender. We're not accepting it. We're not going to use it to buy oil. We're only using the bank core. And so the dollar loses superiority. And then we basically hit a hyperinflation point. So like I remember in the book at some point they were talking about carrots being like $5 a pound and how that's like ridiculous. Then this Bancor thing happens and it goes to like one week, it's $25 a pound. The next week it's $50 a pound. And it becomes one of those like, you know, Weimar Republic type situations because the dollar just, you know, it goes from basically having this backing, this global like liquidity sink essentially because everyone will accept dollars and they have to use dollars for oil to, well, now the only place that's using dollars is the United States and you lose that sink and the Fed still continues printing because that's all they know how to do. And that's just, yeah, it was just like a book where it's like, initially when I read it, I'm like, this is like, it's a, it's not super well written and it was a fictional book. So I was just like, oh, you know, this is an okay book, whatever. And then more stuff started happening throughout 2021. And I'm like, okay, this is like getting a little too close to the truth. And I've heard more and more people bringing up this book now. So um, the Bancor idea was, I could see that being the climax. Like if there was a, a global like revolt against the dollar. I think we're we're probably going to start to see that. I mean, the de-dollarization seems like such a an obvious next step for global finance at this point. And if you read Dalio's new book, he makes a really compelling case for this as well. He argues that we would switch to the yuan, which I don't believe, because I think there are pretty compelling arguments against China even wanting the yuan to be the new reserve currency. I think it would more likely be that we return to gold. And you know there would be some countries that might use Bitcoin, but for a while it would just be gold. And we might still price things in dollars, but we wouldn't use U.S. like treasuries as the reserve currency. It would still be like gold. It would turn to gold based. And I mean, we've had three things in the last month that really make like an incredible case for this. I mean, one basically blocking Russia from two thirds of its money because it's dollar based, right? It, any country, even an ally, should be looking at that and going, "Oh shit, I." do not want to trust U.S. banks with my country's oh, yeah. reserves. Saudi Arabia said they'll start denominating some oil in yuan as well as dollars. So that's like a major move off the petrodollar. And then uh, Russia now is going to back its reserves with gold. So yep. I, like th those are the types of things you would see if the world were going to start moving off the dollar standard, right? Yeah, and to your point, Nat, about Ukraine, Russia, like, so that could be the spark for a lot of this. I mean, that was yeah, that the spark be like for the, a lot the of these sparks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Or, or actually COVID could still be the spark. Right. Yeah. And then because I, and we could, we could go down this rabbit hole for a while. I, the, the martyr made podcast on the history of the Russia, Ukraine conflict is really good. And I, I don't know if you guys have yet. listened to it. it, it no, it's I want to, it's just though. interesting, right? Like I, 
And he doesn't come off as particularly biased in either direction. It's more just like laying the history of that conflict without saying that much about what's going on today. But, uh, you know, there, there is this kind of like interesting question of like, what does, like, what does the U S want from a Russia Ukraine conflict? Right. And like, how does it benefit us? And why are we even like being involved in this at all? And it, it goes back to this line from the book of, you know, all of the people who remember war are like mostly dead now. <laughs> and uh, what is, he has this great line where he says, there, there are two parts that made me think about this. Does the rhythm of the saculum make major war unavoidable? Uh, no one knows. An awakening does not require a war, but every fourth turning since the 15th century has culminated in total war. History teaches only that whatever wars do happen always reflect the mood of the current turning. Wars in a fourth turning find the broadest possible definition and are fought to unambiguous outcomes. So it you know, they're not saying that every fourth turning has to end in a war, but every single previous one has ended in some form of total war. But like what what could that total war be, right? I, it's hard to imagine we would have the same kind of like boots on the ground style thing we did in World War II, but like it's not impossible, right? I, I don't know. It's weird to think about, right? Because again, we don't even we don't really have grandparents we can talk to who remember World War II at this point. We've like lost most of the national consciousness around it. I also think the it's likely to be a proxy. Like I, I think we're very yeah. on Russia Ukraine because it's happening right now. But the one that I like lose sleep about is anything to do with China and Taiwan. Yeah. Yep. Because that's one where like we would almost certainly deploy, in my opinion. You think? As I understand it. Well, and then the question is, what does that even look like, right? Because it's like, I mean, it's two nuclear states, right, would directly be fighting. And then the game theory on that gets really gnarly really quickly. I, actually, I'm, I'm no curious to hear more because, from you, Adil, on why you think we would deploy in a China-Taiwan conflict. I mean, the counter-argument is we did nothing about Hong Kong. But I also think, like, we have more at stake with Taiwan. And the, I think the bigger thing is Russia is like a historical, like they're past looking yeah. Uh, yeah. power. China is a forward looking power. Like they're right. getting stronger and uh, they're very competent, right? Like their economy is doing great. They have a lot of new technology. They control so many of the supply chains. They are building critical infrastructure in much of the world that we're ignoring. There's much more at stake uh, with China than there is with Russia. Russia wants to bring back the USSR, which is this like, you know, again, looking backwards versus looking forwards. So I'm much more worried about the Chinese, Chinese-Taiwanese potential conflict. Uh, and I, I also think the proxy would kind of dull maybe the heat of the war a little bit since there's nuclear armed powers, right? It's not direct conflict, it's indirect conflict. It could escalate because we've technically been in indirect conflict with China before in Korea. Mm. Yeah. Right? But that was a very different China. Right. Very different yeah, the, just to go back a couple of minutes, I for the Dalio prediction around the yuan, like the, I can't imagine Russia trading one fiat that they can't control for another fiat they can't control, right? I think that's like the big lesson here is not that you can't trust America, it's that you just can't trust anybody. And the yeah. thesis for crypto and gold has always been like self-sovereignty for individuals as defense against government. But I think actually it's self-sovereignty for everybody against yeah. every other party yeah. that doesn't have a shared interest. And that goes all the way up between governments. Lynn Alden has this good line that you want to hold assets that aren't somebody else's liability. 
because yeah. if it's somebody else's liability, they could always write off your asset and devalue it. So U.S. Treasuries, the U.S. could always decide, like, oh, no, <laughs> you actually don't have those <laughs> Sorry. <anymore. laughs> yeah. Sorry. They're not worth anything. But gold is nobody's liability, right? It's just a hard right. asset that you have. There's no counterparty risk, I guess. In, exactly. In that. That's the thing with that's the thing that like gets really interesting about I mean this is more like a speculative thing but it's like the game theory around nations accumulating bitcoin is very interesting because it's like if you, if there was they would never advertise it right because you don't want the price to shoot up like Saudi, let's say Saudi Arabia was buying up bitcoin like they would never put out a press release being like we're buying up bitcoin because the price would probably like 10x in a day because every other country then, like the Fed would say, okay, we got to accumulate Bitcoin then. Like we're not going to let Saudi Arabia have all the Bitcoin in the world. Um, and then you just get into this like kind of like hyper price inflation of Bitcoin at that point. But Petro like sats. the question is, the question is like El, Sal- El Salvador is not big enough to trigger that. I wonder what country, like who could tip the scale on that? So I always go back to Saudi Arabia because they have a ton of money and they also have a, they're, they have an asset that is, I'm not saying we're at the end of oil because we're not, obviously, but they have an asset that is a limited resource and that the world is trying to shift away from. So when they think about preserving their wealth, like that is probably pretty important. Like it's not like they're making software, right? Something that has right. like a long time horizon at this point. Yeah. So I feel like they're one that comes to mind. Are there any others you guys think about that are like that would tip the scales other than like the obvious like US or China or somebody like that? UAE, I think, is an interesting one. This Dubai is really starting to position itself as a crypto hub. Oh, interesting. They're in the perfect geographic location to be a new world technology center. They they already have tons of money. They they've made it easy for crypto entrepreneurs to get citizenship and get visas. And so if they can start attracting more of that talent and then start to base more of their currency in Bitcoin and stuff, and then they're, they, I know they facilitate a lot of global trade. So it would yeah. be interesting if they used that as like their, you know, clearinghouse or whatever currency and denominated a lot of stuff domestically <laughs> in it too. And it would kind of make sense, right? It'd be a good way to hedge away from so much oil exposure too. A funny thing is that aligns really well with sovereign individual as like going back to the city states. City states. <laughs> because, yep. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> This is another one of their reinventions, right? Because previously they were going after becoming a financial hub. Uh, yeah. And that didn't quite work out as expected. And like, have you guys been to Dubai? Yeah, yeah. I've, been, I've been once. My thesis, my personal thesis, uh, I've been there a few times, is just like, I feel like people don't want to live there, right? Yeah. You know, it's in the desert. It's amazing, but it's still in the desert. And there's just so many, if you can afford, if you have like, you know, trying to track crypto millionaires and you're picking between Portugal and Dubai, it's like, well, Portugal, you can go outside most of the year. Right. Well, yeah, and there's, it's like, you know, we'll talk about this more when we get to seeing like a state, but Dubai just doesn't feel right. It is, you know, it, you can feel that this is a manufactured city. It is not organic. It is not a real place that people live. It is, it's got, you know, a Disneyland layout where it's too optimized in this mechanical grid like way. And then there's there's all the just weird stuff around. Okay, there are all these laws where you could get thrown in jail for life with no due process, but we just don't enforce them because we don't feel like it right now. But if you if they decide to enforce them, yeah. it could be really bad. So uh, kind of like our marijuana laws, though, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess there are plenty of laws like that in the U.S. too, right? Like rich rich white people don't go to jail for having marijuana. It's yeah, <laughs> those laws exist for other reasons. So. There's, there's a line towards the end of the book where he's talking about preparing for the fourth turning. It's just very brief, but I loved it, which is 
quote, really know where your money is. And mm. the emphasis is in the book, not mine. It's like italicized, no. Really know where your money is. This happened in the Mandibles book too. So like when that sort of like crazy inflation started, they shut down the stock market for like three months. So anybody thought, oh, I could just like, I have a hundred K in stocks or like a million dollars in stocks. Like I can just pull that out if I need the cash. It's like, yeah. well, not if the stock market's closed. And then when it did eventually open, like everything went down 80% the next day. And so it's like, when you thought you had a million, you actually have 200 K. And by the way, that 200 K can buy you like 95% less than what it did when the stock market closed three months ago. I was um, talking about this with yeah. uh, Miles this morning. I think you guys have interacted with him on Twitter. But is, this is one funny thing that I think with the crypto crowd is people are very, oh, I want to I'm gonna own my private keys, right? I'm going to own my Bitcoin. I'm not going to keep it on an exchange. And then they put their seed phrase in a security deposit box at a bank. Like The first thing that's going to happen if the government decides to seize wealth is they'll just go through all the security deposit boxes and get all the private keys. <laughs> like You, that you have just the... rebanked yourself. <laughs> so I wish the book was... It was written, I think, in 2016. So they don't talk a ton about crypto. I wish it was written like in 2020 because it would have been a lot more prescient i think for like yeah. what we're doing because in the book they focus a lot more on gold so like mm. the government started going like door to door to especially people that lived in suburbs to confiscate gold or any other like precious metals which i didn't realize this until reading that book that actually happened in the u.s before like, yeah. i didn't realize fdr made it illegal for u.s citizens to own gold at one point yeah. in time during the depression there is precedent. I mean, that's why people say that you shouldn't rule out the government making it illegal to hold Bitcoin and other crypto yeah. too in a hyperinflationary state, right? It's like so. This is what I mean why we like that we haven't hit the climax yet, right? Because like I think mm. I'm, not, I'm not saying this is exactly what'll happen, but I think like there will be something that happens that literally affects everyone. Like we COVID, can't just I mean, like oh go to the grocery store and like pay a little bit more for food. It's like no, it's going to be something where you're like I gotta like fight for my food or I don't have access to my bank account or I can't sell stocks for the next three months. Like there's like, it's going to be something that everybody is like hit by. It's not going to be like, Oh yeah. Like I just would mind. I had a minor inconvenience. I think we're discounting COVID. A lot of governments, especially around the world said you literally cannot leave your home or we will put That's you true. in jail. That's a good point. Right. The, the U S was tamer than a lot of other countries. And if you were in Texas or whatnot, it was extra tame. <laughs> but I mean, if you were if you were a New Yorker, right, you were pretty much on lockdown for a long time. I mean, there are still people who like wear masks outside. <laughs> it's there's, there's people where I live who wear masks in their car still. So yeah, I saw I saw a family of five. I saw a family of five driving by in their like Range Rover and all five of them were wearing masks in their car. I was like, really? Still, it, you know, it, but that like I, obviously, things could get worse, but the government's mandating everybody stay in their house and not leave them for months at a time is a pretty, I mean, it's, That's it's very authoritarian, right? Like, even if it was for good reasons, it's still a super global authoritarian measure, right? Yeah. I don't know. But it, it could, there could be something much worse, too, right? There could be gold confiscating, crypto banning, you know, going to war thing- in the Middle East to force the petrodollar to stay in place, right? Like, there could be a lot of worse stuff coming down the pipe. Yeah, I think the weird thing is like COVID created a lot of the tools that I think could be used in the crisis, right? So like mm. this sort of like um, acceptance of like we can ask your health information and there's like no privacy around that because it affects other people. Only selectively, of course, only with vaccines, not with other things related to your health. But that became acceptable. It's like, hey, you got to show your pass to like 
come into this restaurant. So now there's like no privacy around that. And it goes, it's, it's digital, it's accessible to a lot more people. That's one part of it. The second part of it is I think it makes the social credit score system a lot more likely than it was pre-COVID. Like it's a lot more acceptable, I should say. If COVID never happened, I don't think the vast majority of people would be like, it's okay for the government to have a score that says how desirable or acceptable this person is in the public sphere. And now the framing is like totally different. It's like, oh no, this person is dangerous because they're not vaccinated and they shouldn't be allowed in this restaurant or on the subway or whatever. But they can probably extend that thinking to other things. Like the next time there's a crisis, it's like, oh, uh, and this is obviously a parody or exaggeration, but it's like, you know, Adil did not like the tweet bashing Putin. Like, therefore, he loses five points and he's not desirable, you know, in a public setting or acceptable on this website. I'm getting in trouble. I'm getting in trouble because I like your guys' tweets. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you're in trouble because you're on the podcast. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I think- but yeah, you see what I mean? It's just like it's now acceptable to, like, take other people's personal decisions and say, like, we have a say in this as a country or as a, as a mob. So there's two things happening at once though. Cause like usually people frame this as one narrative or or rather as like, and I think it's actually two narratives like in a locked in an arms race, which is we have infrastructure and cultural capital for better surveillance and control, but we also have the best infrastructure and cultural capital we've ever had for like self sovereignty. Yes. And they're both happening at the exact same time. And it's literally like a technological arms race, which is why, like, if you think of the Balaji framing of, like, I think he calls it crypto capital, woke capital, and Chinese capital. I think the two real players are Chinese capital and uh, crypto capital, because those are the two directly at odds with one another, right? Woke capital is kind of, it could live in either one of those systems. Uh, So it's a question of, do we get convinced of self-sovereignty, which could result from fatigue of uh, government uh, excess? Or are we fatigued by the self- excesses of self-sovereignty and then we turn to government? Uh, and the parties are very inconsistent on this because both parties have authoritarian bents for certain yeah. things and individual yeah, bents for other things. They're just, you know, they're both authoritarian and individual just as they desire, which is, he talks on this, t- touches on this briefly in the book, but I, I, would, I would be very excited to see a, either a contingent within one of the major parties, which I think is the likeliest, and very unlikely as a third party that brings some cohesion to this point of view, and they could be the catharsis, right? I think it largely has to be something that is politically unifying for more than 45% of the country, which is sort of the state we're in right now. Like Trump was unifying for, have very, very unifying, but not for large enough of the country, but he did get the 30 to 40% he wanted completely in line. So we need someone with that level of unification with a more coherent scheme for a larger percentage of the population, which is a big, big ask. Like, I don't think right now it doesn't feel possible. It feels actually insane even saying it, but that is sort of the outcome of the last three fourth turnings. Yeah. Well, there's, there's this good line here where, yeah, every 40 years or so, always during a crisis or awakening, a new realigning election gives birth to a new political party system. And I, you know, to what you guys were talking about before with this potential for like social credit, greater authoritarianism, it's interesting. I, and this may just be our different Twitter bubbles that we end up in based on our follows and whatnot. I'm actually optimistic that things are moving in the opposite direction where we had this like kind of peak canceling crisis, peak like authoritarian crisis coming into like 2018 to 2020 
and the start of COVID and, you know, kind of like marking people as undesirables. And like there, there was all of that really strong energy. And it feels like that tide has shifted where now there's a lot more pushback against this like these like blanket mob attacks on people and there's a little more pushback against like the government trying to get in everyone's business over everything and there's definitely i feel at least a sense that the political parties are shifting where a lot of the things that i have believed for a decade plus which i always associated with the democratic party as liberal values are now suddenly like republican values and it or it's at least feeling like it's shifting in that direction where there there i think you, you could have for that uh like it like individual sovereignty and individual liberty right like i think those were oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. those were previously that. attached to like gay rights women's rights abortion uh stuff like that and now it's it's sort of like okay we we kind of like the the democratic party checked a few of those boxes and now it's almost like an overreach of like well now we want to make sure everybody is kind of like you know believes this like set of things and there's a like centrist conservative pushback, which the book actually says that the millennial generation should be more conservative than like the liberal boomer generation. And there will be this kind of like, uh, you know, th- they use the, the phrase return to family values, which I don't love, but there'll be almost like a, a, a correction or a pullback where it says like, okay, some of this stuff has gone too far and we need to like, you know, reclaim in some of these areas. And I feel like I, what I'm seeing is that if you had a incredibly charismatic centrist Republican candidate who ran in 2024, 2028, they could just win by a landslide because there's been some of this frustration with what we're seeing around like economic stuff at like democratic leadership. Some of, I think there's going to be more that comes out from like the COVID stuff that makes people distrust the government more. Like we're already starting to see that right where it was like, Oh, you know, lab leak is misinformation. Oh, like women's cycles getting messed up is dangerous misinformation. Like a lot of these things that were like silenced, it's like, oh, that might have actually been true, right? And I I think to your point of deal about like, there could be this like charismatic person who comes in and like aligns with, you know, like 45, 50% of people and really like shifts the parties in that direction. Like I could totally see that happening. And that would be, I think, what resolves the crisis into in a the positive high. way exactly yeah yeah, yeah. whether yeah. that's in 20 whether that's in 24 or 28 right like who knows but to me that would be the sign that like okay like we if we have a, a highly charismatic more like midline president who comes in and addresses a lot of these things that have become pretty common talking points at least in at least in the social circles i see like that to me would be what gives like a renewed faith in the future of like the american republic this is much more uh lowbrow of an example than yours, but there are a couple SNL skits that kind of hit this home where it's like, one is guess your political party, another one is Black Jeopardy, where they'll have folks come out and they, in the guess your political party one, they describe their views. And then the three contestants have to guess whether they're Democrats or Republicans. And the kind of the takeaway is like, so much of what they're saying is similar across both that the party delineations almost don't make sense. And one thing from the Black Jeopardy one, if you go to Black Jeopardy with Tom Hanks, uh, they keep talking about like mistrust of government. And there's one question where it's like they're talking about a, an election and Tom Hanks like bangs the buzzer and he says something like, oh, like why vote? They, they decided that anyway. And everyone is like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like they did decide that anyway. And I, I think like those are, I mean, those are expressed humorously, but uh, 
there's enough of those ties where if someone is willing to break out of either Trumpian sphere or Wokean sphere and kind of tie those things together. The other thing I've noticed, Neil, you were asking that for an example, go watch like a 2008 or 2004. Oh yeah. We talked about this, me and you, when we had dinner that time. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago. 2004, 2008 Democratic primary debates look (laughs) awfully like 2020 Republican primary debates. Mm. Uh, I think if that pattern holds, then by the I would argue they're more conservative in many ways, like than 2016 Republican primary debates, like 2004, 2008 Democrat, like it was not acceptable to be pro gay marriage, which is crazy to think about. about Immigration. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. so if you look to bolster Nat's argument, if you think of like 24 or 28, if the 8 to 12 year drag uh, delay rather uh, kind of holds, then you basically have like a 2016 Democrat, you know, a generic 2016 Democrat, as opposed to uh, the specific one that was not very popular. It, uh, it, sound, it sounds kind of crazy, but like, yeah. and I don't, I'm kind of talking out of my ass here, but like looking at, you know, certain ideas and party lines and stuff, like the... Republicans idolize Reagan, but he would actually almost be closer to the Democrat Party of five to ten years ago today, right? Mm-hmm. Like he he was a lot less conservative than the like Trumpian conservative now, and so you you know keeping with the secular idea, Trump was as conservative as people make like make. Well, that's true. I get he, he, yeah, he was a weird authoritarian case. bent. Adil, wasn't there like an image you showed me a few weeks ago that was like it was almost like a quadrant or something? And it was like both parties are in the authoritarian side of the quadrant. Yeah, it's the uh, political compass. And political compass, yes. Recent presidents in their respective quadrants. I'll see if I can pull it up. Conservative, liberal, authoritarian, libertarian. Is that? Yeah. Yep. That was what he showed yeah, me. Yeah. Yep. yeah, and it was like they're both, you know, Trump and Biden are both on the like authoritarian side of that, of that axis. So we haven't really seen, at least I haven't seen, maybe there's like, governors or something like that that are more on the libertarian bent but i haven't seen it in the national level anyway yeah it could be somebody new i mean i don't really know many politicians below age 50 like <laughs> that's yeah. the other thing that like i think i think it's also just like the wrong generation yeah. to be at at this point in time right like for everything that's going on it's like the fact that you know almost all the major leaders i mean the leader the leader of the house and the leader of the the president i mean I think the I think Pelosi's like eighty three or something, right? Like she's yeah. definitely in her eighties. Yeah. <laughs> Still killing it on in the market, so <laughs> best hedge fund in the country. <laughs> Take that, Ray Dalio. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, no, one thing I want to go back to uh, a deal that you were talking about maybe like five ten minutes ago was the Balaji stuff with like woke capital and crypto capital. I mean, do you think there's a possibility for, because we saw this play out with COVID, like, do you think there's a possibility for parallel systems where you have like, you know, certain states or certain areas might go, you know, might more align with one ideology and then other places take the other approach. And I would say that aligns pretty strongly with sovereign individual too, is that you just kind of have like different places electing to take different approaches. I mean, I'm hardly an expert, so my guess is as good as yours, but my guess would basically be that we're already seeing this with the internet, where you're having like parallel internets, and they're, I think if the internet becomes the public, uh, the primary sphere, uh, public sphere, then reality will follow. So if we have multiple internets, and that's where you're getting information, and it's affecting your view of reality, then in practice, the way you behave will also change. So I could see parallel systems. And in many ways, we already have that between the US and China. 
Yeah. At least as I understand it. I actually haven't been to China. I don't know if either of you have. Yeah, I've been. Uh, I've been once. I was going to make the internet analogy as well, because I've heard this a few times, which I think is a good one, is that we currently have three internets, and it's not really clear which one's going to win. There's ChinaNet, there's Euronet, and there's like AmericaNet. And we all really want the American internet to win, but it almost has the hardest proposition because there's nobody directly fighting for it. Whereas you have the you have like this European consortium of countries that want some degree of control over the internet. They don't want full China control, but they want you know certain amounts of control. And often their laws end up. It, there's a good line from the book about this too, which is regulators are so far behind technologists that when they get around to regulating something, they typically just accelerate the thing they're trying to stop. So GDPR <laughs> is like a perfect the example of this. Or something, right? Yeah, well, like GDPR was meant to try to like level the playing field a bit so that Google and Facebook didn't dominate. But all it did was make it easier for Google and Facebook to dominate because small companies can't afford to comply with this like confusing like legislative architecture, right? And yeah. I don't know what's going to happen with their new like trying to sue Apple into forcing or into allowing the Android app store onto their phones, right? Like if that's going to go anywhere. But I could see that you know, probably creating, I don't know, similar bad issues. It's just like, there. it's this weird in-between. And then you have China where it's like full authoritarian filtering and control. But but then the China one is interesting because like most, or I would, uh, most like educated Chinese citizens know this is not the real internet. It's kind of like, you know, Banana Republic, like, oh, haha, they want us to believe these things. But, you know, we can trivially get around it to get on like the real internet, American internet. But then... Like ours is definitely now getting filtered and censored in its own ways too to thing. drive certain political yep. views. It's just less explicit, right? Like I, you, I almost prefer the Chinese version where the government is saying like, no, these are the like <laughs> random things we want you to believe and we're going to filter the internet to believe them. And then the citizenry is almost more aware that it's there. Whereas in America, it's like this weird collusion between Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatnot to like block out these ideas and allow these ideas, but there's no like central authority saying, you know, this is ministry of truth says like these things are okay. These things aren't. Uh, so the, the question is that who is like, so the weird thing is right. Like it's in the U S it's not the government doing it explicitly. Right. Like, I mean, Trump was president when these companies banned him from social media. Yeah. So you can't say, Oh, it's like the government that did that. But it's it does feel like the government. Like it feels like it's like the swamp, right? Or whatever well, it, that, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to no, call I, that, that sort of. It's, it's not like a conspiracy in the sense that, yeah. like, oh, it's some people in like a shadowy room or whatever. But it's like there is an enforcement of a certain viewpoint, I guess. Well, there's definitely like you, at yeah. least small groups of individuals who know how to push these buttons and try to directly drive things. Like I know there are political teams that will do this right like did you guys see the whole joe rogan canceling coordinated thing oh yeah yeah, yeah. that was, that was uh, there's a really good article wild. about this or so basically like because if you remember a few months ago there were like three stories that came out about a week and a half apart from each other that all made joe rogan look really bad and mm -hmm. i guess some people noticed that like it's kind of weird that all these are showing up at the same time <laughs> And that they almost seem like planned out. And so they did some digging and they were able to trace a lot of it back to this like political think tank group that it at least seems like was hired to seed the stories to try to like discredit him as an undesirable individual. And so there, there is some degree of like individuals can, you know, start a canceling movement. But I think a lot of it's just incentives, right? It's like if, if, Twitter kicks Trump off of Twitter, Facebook, then if they don't kick him off, it seems like they're, you know, 
pro Trump, and so they're going to allow him. And then if they if Facebook and Twitter does but, it, then YouTube like, is like, oh well, I guess we should do it too, right? I think. Yeah, and I guess maybe the same thing happened. It's like a contagion or something. Like the same thing happened. Yeah, with the COVID well, it's, stuff. it's the peer it's pressure like, thing. Oh, yeah, right. It's, it's this, like this, if they allow that, then or if we allow that, and the other ones don't, then we're the ones who are going to be branded as the anti-vax platform or like the, yeah. whatever. Yeah, it's like the masking in restaurants thing, right? It, after a certain point, it was no longer about what's necessary; it was about how Same early way. can we remove this without looking like bad people. Trump was on a podcast la- a couple weeks ago, uh, the Nelk the Nelk Boys podcast. I don't know if you guys ever heard of them; they're super popular. Um, I had never listened to an episode except for the, like, this is the first time I'd listen. I mean, the dude is hilarious. Like when he's not president, it's just, a, I it's like a 45 <laughs> minutes of comedy. Um, he talks about being a DJ at Mar-a-Lago. You have to listen to this episode. It's incredible. Okay. Talks about his favorite song is YMCA, which he called the gay national anthem. <laughs> um, he says he has a high aptitude for music. Um, he's taken tests and he has a high aptitude it's an amazing <laughs> podcast you just have to listen to this um this is like the last five minutes of the podcast the other 40 minutes were more about like the russia stuff like they're asking him about his relationship with putin like all they, it was actually a pretty interesting podcast i say that all just to say like there was nothing that he said during those 45 minutes where i'm like this is a person who should be banned completely from the public sphere like it's just it's it was kind of a like refreshing because I hadn't heard anything about him you know he's not on social media right and there's no tweets to post and I don't follow any of like the right wing stuff that is posting about him all the time and I think I might have him muted even on uh, like the word Trump muted on Twitter yeah, same so I never see it so then just listening to this I was like this dude is hilarious like why is this guy not on Twitter this would make Twitter so much better well this actually goes back to what we were talking yeah. about forty five minutes ago with the the millennial response to the invasion of the Middle East was kind of what indicated the crisis of, okay, our government is like doing this thing and we are realizing that maybe we don't like what our government is doing. And we're, you know, there's all of this pushback. And then I think what we experienced during the Trump era was like, okay, we don't like, we don't necessarily like this person. We don't agree with a lot of what he's doing, but then the characterization that's being portrayed in what were historically trusted institutions doesn't line up with what we can validate with our own like eyes and ears, right? And I just remember this started in like 2015-ish, 2016-ish, where you would see like a bunch of headlines go out about, oh, like Trump said this thing, or and not even just Trump, but like some Republican said this thing. And then you would go listen to the actual speech or, you know, read what was said, and it was like completely different. Or it was like really uncharitably misinterpreted to paint them in a bad light. And after enough of those experiences, like Covington Catholic was probably the like, was, was for me the peak where I was like, okay, I just give up on the news. Like they're, the, the misrepresentations have gotten so egregious that it was like, okay, we just don't trust these organizations anymore. And that's another, like, I think symptom of this kind of like crisis mentality and that like boomer conflict because they grew up in this era of like American exceptionalism. We built the highway system. We put a man on the moon. We like did all these incredible things. We have the amazing like New York times news channels, all of this. And now we're trying to look at those organizations and institutions. And we're just seeing all of these incredible cracks and wanting something better that actually lives up to those old expectations. Those things were there before, right? Like I'm sure. to use a non-political example, like back when we only had a handful of networks, you guys probably, 
have dabbled in this yourself, but a lot of the like alien conspiracy stuff was pretty much a collaboration between the federal government and each of the networks to paint people who were like seeing things as crazy. Uh, and it's like pretty well documented now that it was orchestrated. And I think it was just like this collective delusion that people were actually happy to engage in, which kind of goes back to like, you can't predict the event, but you can predict the reaction. And over here, like the reaction is now that you're uninterested in the collective delusion. Right. It's like, I would rather look through the cracks and mm. find, you know, air quotes, the truth. But I do think there's also two narratives at play. Like my biggest fear is like, I, I, you don't want to give up the mainstream narrative just to inherit like a counter narrative because then you're so locked into a narrative. And like, I do think the mainstream narrative is like, you know, what I would define as like New York Times, et cetera. Then there's a the counter narrative of you can't believe anything in it. And then there's something that's like a little bit in between, like, Trump is funny, but I also think Trump is dangerous. Like the January 6th thing, that, that's real. Like it's been kind of like memed in a way because it's been harped on so much by left-wing media. But you know, they stormed the Capitol. They chanted, hang Mike Pence. Like these are like pretty egregious. So I'm firmly in the camp of like that was not a, that was not a uh, protest. That was like with the intention of changing the result of the election. And that's pretty not, I don't know if that warrants like suppressing, you know, his ability to speak out on platforms, right? I'm generally in the camp of like people should be allowed to speak and everyone should just, you know, deal with the consequences in other ways, right? Uh, without suppressing the right of people to speak. Oh, obviously, was... we, get into a whole, we get into a whole separate thing of like these are private platforms. You don't have freedom of speech on those platforms, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think there is a thesis for like there was something sacred violated and that makes a person dangerous. And now you have a coordinated response to that. But I could see that for like a period of time and maybe Trump is not the best example, but like a better example might be all the people who are banned from Twitter for yeah. COVID misinformation with air quotes, which then turned out to not be misinformation. Like, do those people yeah. get reinstated? Today, the, who decides that? Like what's the Hunter the, Biden laptop thing, which yeah. was surprised. And then the yep. New York times wrote a story a couple of weeks ago, basically yep. saying it was all true. Yep. Yeah. That should be a scandal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe Jan six was like one of the cri- or climax moments, right? If we're thinking so, more domestically in terms of American turmoil, right? It, yeah. Because you know it didn't really turn into anything, but it could have turned into something, right? Yeah. If it had been you know more uh, a more like serious insurrection, right? Then. You know, it, I'm also just shocked at how easy it was for everybody to get in. Like, it's just like, really? Like, Matt, like, are, is Al Qaeda watching this and being like, wow, that was way too easy? Like, <laughs> we could just walk in. <laughs> we could just walk in. Like, <laughs> I guess they did get to, they, they did at the end just get to walk in. No. Yeah. No, it's just like amazing yeah. to watch that. That, like, that was that simple. Like, to just get it, like I don't know, it's just kind of shocking. To, but that's to the what capital, the, the capital police's credit, though, that was probably the right decision, right? Because if you, I mean, even though those guys weren't carrying yeah. guns and stuff, if if the police had resisted more violently, it probably could have gotten worse, right? Potentially, I don't yeah. know. It's just like I, I can, it's one I can of those see both sides of that like, argument, right? Yeah. It's like okay, well, what's the point yeah. of having police then if they're just going to let people walk into the capital, especially into but that also, place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But you can also see, like, okay, well, you don't want to create, like, a violent police battle on Capitol grounds. I don't know. Yeah. But it's like if somebody wanted to storm, not somebody, like a mob wanted to storm the White House while the president was in there, like, I mean, I would say the police are totally justified in doing whatever they want to do. (laughs) 
There, I mean, I mean maybe that, that sounds bad to protesters or people, but like honestly, <laughs> they're storming. Yeah, wasn't that during Obama? Where the guy like ran into the White House with a knife, and it took them like <laughs> five minutes to find him. Or I think something. he jumped the fence and like ran. He jumped the fence toward, and ran yeah. in. Yeah, no, but he got in. Like he got into. Oh the wow, he got into the actual White House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With a yeah. knife. <laughs> yeah, let's see. God. That's crazy. Yeah, here we go. Twenty fourteen. Uh, jumped the White House fence and sprinted through the front door, made it much farther into the building than previously known, overpowering one Secret Service officer and running through much of the main floor. <laughs> is overpowering a soft way of saying, like, kill the guy? Uh, no, and this is the, like uh, this is the uh, cancelable take on this, is apparently it was like a small female Secret Service agent manning the front door of the White House, and he just, like, barreled through her. And this was sort of like the commentary afterwards where it was like, maybe we should have like the rock standing in front of the white house and not, you know, we we should have like the biggest person possible guarding the front door. But, and then I guess the alarm box was off. Yeah. An alarm box near the front (laughs) entrance of the white house. Yeah. An alarm box near the front entrance designed to alert guards to an intruder had been muted at what officers believe was a request of the usher's office. (laughs) <laughs> said a secret service official who spoke on the condition of anonymity <laughs> <laughs> you know what I, this is a bit of a departure from this immediate thing but it was just something i noticed this week not to turn us to oscars talk that uh, we don't need to discuss that, but it was the first like, an episode on that <laughs> it was the first shared national experience that wasn't at the, at least at the beginning divisive now it has since evolved i think into something more political but like i hadn't felt something like that in a long time where you're watching something live that everyone has seen play out the same way with the same amount of information. And it felt incredibly foreign. Did you like it? Like, was it a good, like, did, was it a good feeling that like, uh, this is some shared kind of event? Cause you're right. Like everyone's kind of in their own parallel yeah. universe. I mean, I think shared events are good. I don't, yeah. I wouldn't say like, this I'm not saying like, like this event was yeah, good yeah, or yeah. not, but I think the <laughs> yeah, idea of a shared event, like, did you, yeah, I, I think it was a good thing. I don't know. You need some social fabric. Like, you need, like sports are basically the last remaining thing, and that's basically like amicable uh, opposition, right? Sports and the weather. Yeah. Even the weather. Even the weather, I feel like, is a little more controversial than sports. Yeah, well, it, it, it gets is, too I, I think that to that point, there is this, and you've seen the meme, like, I support the current thing, right? Where <laughs> there's a. Have you seen this, Adil? No, oh my god okay this is the best new meme format it's it's the npc face with like a badge you know circle around him that just says i support the current thing and he's got like a mask on and a ukrainian flag on his forehead and like a needle in his shoulder and like a rainbow flag behind him and just like he, you know he's got all of that stuff and they just keep adding new things to the meme whenever a new event happens so now there's a picture of the like slap alongside of it too but the i think what it what it what it hits at is that i think starting with maybe starting with trump but then especially with covid there it it is at least felt like there is a major narrative going on that we are all supposed to be like constantly on top of that supersedes individual interests of of like sports and whatnot right where it's you know okay it's what's going on with trump now it's what's going on with covid now it's what's going on with ukraine now it's oh my god did you see the slap right it almost like we 
there's there's almost too much going on and too much information and so we've like recoalesced around a single like lens of time that everybody wants to stay on top of i think this is different and here's why for for everything you mentioned as part of that meme you could create a second one which was like the opposite i don't know yeah exactly it's the the russian flag it's whatever but both of those would have the slap you'd have the republican version of i stand by whatever is current (laughs) and the the left-leaning version but both would have the slap, which was sort of the thing that made it different in my eyes. Mm. Right. Uh, whereas there is no other, like, there is no like polar opposite reaction that you could immediately take of like, Oh yeah. You know, yeah. this, like, instead of like, I support Ukraine, it's like, Oh, Putin's not that bad. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's like, I mean, you see those takes that's it's just yeah. nuts. I, I thought yeah, we were like, going to get that. Like, I thought we were going to get that with Ukraine. I was like, okay, cool. Something everybody can agree is like probably a dick move. And then, Nope, not quite. Yeah. Like, <laughs> But you're right, Adil. That's right. This this is a little bit different because it's not like you can immediately take the opposite position. Because like, what is the opposite position? I I have seen takes that it was justified versus not justified. I, I've seen well, both that's arguments. Now. I think so I think Adil was saying immediately in the immediate moment it was mm. just like, wow, how did that happen? Like, yeah, yeah. I thought it was a skit. Like yeah. I wasn't watching it, uh, and I I never watch it. But like I checked Twitter like a few hours later. I, I was doing something that day, and then I go on Twitter. And I see these like memes popping up because those happen immediately. And I'm like, oh, this must have been like a really good Oscar skit. Like, I guess Will Smith <laughs> and Chris Rock did like something together. And then it like it didn't. It, I didn't know till the next day that it was actually like a real sla- like that th- this actually happened. But it, there's something it was. I don't know. It feels weird to use the word refreshing for something that I think was like overall a shitty thing to have happened. But everyone shared this thing. So I, I wonder if we'll get more of those feelings towards the end of the fourth turning where it's like... Brought it back. Mars. I love it. Oh, <laughs> Mars. Mar- Mars could be the end. That would be Mars, cool. Mars could yeah, be the start of... Well, Mars is already reminding us of like... There's a really good essay I'll send you guys. You can include it in the show notes. It's excellent. It's about the uh, last few years of the Apollo program. Because hmm. the way it's pitched now is like, oh yeah, everyone was on board. We're going to the moon. It was like this highly optimistic unified thing, but actually it was really controversial. It was about spending in space instead of spending at home. It was nearly canceled a couple times. JFK put his ass on the line, et cetera, et cetera. Great story. And we already see a bit of that with the space stuff where yeah. it's like, why would you spend there when you can't, when you should be spending here? So I would, I'm in the camp as you were, like, I would personally be excited by it, but I feel like we've already seen enough of that debate where it concerns me that it would not be unifying. I think it would have to be something that's like, it, it's enough of an existential threat that you just have no choice but to unify. Like, it, it can't be like an opt-in. It's like, you're in. You can opt out if you don't want to live, but you're in. The real unifying thing would be the SpaceX, you know, rocket gets up there, gets past the moon, and then it hits the dome and just <laughs> blows up. And it's like, the flat earthers were right! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You just see like a little crack <laughs> in space. It's like, oh god! <laughs> like a bright light shining through. You're like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and then honestly, we're in like a snow th- globe or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. After three days, everyone would be like, eh, okay, like it was whatever. Yeah, yeah, me. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Pentagon said aliens are real, and everyone was like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so, true. Sorry, go for it. No, I was just saying that that's true. Like, but I wonder what that it would have to be something so obviously existential. Like, it couldn't be like COVID, right? Would be not sig- not significant or serious enough to 
quality. It would be like it would have to be like Ebola or like smallpox yeah. or like something like that. I read a crazy book a couple months ago about smallpox, um, which was called Demon in the Freezer. I think is the name of it. So it's basically about how like smallpox is like eradicated in the world, but not really because it exists in a lot of labs. And then the World Health Organization destroyed 99% of the vaccine stockpile uh, because it cost $25,000 a year to maintain. Uh, and this was like 10 years ago. And so basically there is smallpox in like dozens of CDC labs, dozens of Russian labs. I'm sure it's in China. I'm sure it's in India. And all it takes is like a lab leak. And we basically have no vaccines available. And the smallpox vaccine, the thing that's amazing about it is you can take it after you're infected as long as it's within the first, like, five days, which is – and it's a very obvious infection. It's not like huh. it's not like COVID where it's like, oh, you're walking around with no symptoms. Like, it's very clear that you would have it. So you, you have five days to basically take the vaccine and you're fine. That's uh, cool. It's very, very effective. But we don't have enough vaccines. And to restart that production, it's $7 billion now to go back and do that because I don't think it's we have not manufacturing – Think, it's like, not very much, but if you had Pfizer an outbreak, made, like, we don't have very much, but like, <laughs> yeah, but if you had an outbreak, like, do you have, do you have time to restart manufacturing at that point? Like, you're not going to get a warning when they're, I will yeah. say Operation Warp Speed was like the first impressive government driven event, I think, of our life. Right. Hmm. And, you know, you you can argue about, OK, like it, it might not have been necessary to do it at that scale. And like, OK, there were unacknowledged side effects and all of these things. But it, it was pretty impressive that we got all of that done and got it distributed in a year and a half. Right. And I, when I think about this, like I'm, I'm not shy about my general dissatisfaction with the U.S. government. And I cannot, I cannot name many impressive things it has done in the last 20 years besides just like waste money on stupid shit. But getting all that done in a year and a half was like pretty impressive, right? It was like, go US, yeah, right? Point. And we haven't seen a lot of those things. So I, I would have some hope that if, if smallpox or something serious broke out, we would at least we not would. be hopeless. There are yeah, some well, I think that would be unifying, I guess, is what I, where yeah, I was definitely going with that, be Is that like, it's not something that you could like, I don't know if there is another side to the smallpox outbreak, right? Like it's just, well, I mean, this actually is another kind of like theme from the book, right? Where it's like the, the elders who remember war don't want to start wars. And so like the elders who saw tons of their kids die from smallpox, like really wanted to protect against it. And we just don't have that like history. Generational memory now. Exactly. Generational memory. And this is like, I don't mean this the way it sounds, but it's almost a bad thing that COVID turned out to be relatively mild compared to other plagues, because in in that sense, it didn't like reinstate a respect for biology's destructive force, right? Where true. like we are, we're almost more able now to continue yes. defying it, nature's ability to destroy us because like it was so that. bad, right? Yeah. Like, you view history as linear than a mild COVID was the right thing. But if you view it as like cyclical through this lens, then yeah. perversely you would want a worse pandemic. Exactly. Like there not even a, not, almost a rounding error compared to Spanish flu. Right. So hmm. no, not quite. Yeah. Still but, bad, it all, but, but it also depends Spanish how you count. I mean, yeah, it depends how you count them too. Cause like now they're revising how they're counting the deaths and it's like if you go yeah back yeah and, and count it that way then it's like what actually counts and then how did they count it during the spanish flu like there's all these like underlying assumptions which aren't i don't know enough about maybe people have looked at that but um i don't know if yeah i don't know if you can do an apples to apples type comparison there's an it interesting thing my argument so i'm gonna do it though yeah of course <laughs> 
vestiges of, uh, or rather traces of the same attitude where like you haven't seen wars, so you're more likely to invite it, right? In California now, there's a, I want to make sure I get my facts right, so we'll fact check this, but I believe there's like a couple of issues with polio. Oh, yeah. We have these communities on the far left and far right, which just won't take the vaccine because they just don't know, like you haven't seen how terrible it can be. Yeah. And uh, for the first time, you're seeing like a spike in numbers. I believe it's measles come back too. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah, you're right. It says this was a few years ago, but there were 25 kids with polio-like symptoms in the Bay Area and L.A. primarily. I know you guys have a hard stop. Do we want to do any? uh... Yeah, one other thing I wanted to touch on or at least ask you guys, like why when I was researching this book before the episode, uh, this book is super controversial, like in a way that Sovereign Individual and some other books that we've covered, which are in the same sphere, are not. The only thing I found that could justify that was Steve Bannon has talked about this book. So I could see why like people, <laughs> Guilty by people would associate it. Yeah, uh, I wonder if that's if that's what it is. But it could also be that it is a kind of like a hard truth, right? For like to prove in our yeah. yeah, that but also it's a hard thing to like we were talking about this generational memory thing, right? It's like I mean, I used to be in the camp for sure before reading this book, definitely. Uh now I'm like kind of halfway. But I was in the camp that like generations are kind of bullshit that like there is no such thing as like a Gen X or a millennial. It's just like a way to talk about people or lump them together. And it's not really true. But I don't know. Now I'm kind of more in the middle on it after reading this book. We like we were raised, at least I was raised in a way where it's like we're, we're post history now. Yeah. It's just like, yep. we're, and this challenges that. And that's actually a really, really core belief. In a way that, because it's an unnamed core belief, challenging it is even scarier because uh, you don't really know what's being challenged. So I could see that being a cause for like why someone, I mean, I don't know why it would cause it to be controversial, but I could see why it would lead to a gut reaction that's like, I'm not on board with this. Well, I, I think a good version of this is when we talk about hyperinflation as a potentiality, I, I sometimes hear the argument, and it's usually from older folks that like, no, the the Fed has figured out like the monetary cycle, right? Like they've figured out how to like manage money and everything so that we don't have those crazy booms and busts, crazy inflation, deflation, all of that. We've like figured this out into our discussion right before that, right? Like we've figured out biology. We don't have plagues anymore. We don't, you know, we know how to defeat this stuff, right? We don't have wars anymore. Like we, you know, World War II, atom bomb, it was too costly for us to have wars again. Like that doesn't happen anymore. And I think we We really don't, Exactly. Yeah. We've solved it, right? And, and we talked about this in uh, the last episode, Structured Scientific Revolutions, right? Where you develop this hubris around the current paradigm and you just assume it answers everything. And then you need some inciting event to make you question the paradigm that has existed maybe for your entire life and try to figure out a new one. And what this book hints at is that we might be in an era of history where we're realizing like, oh, maybe those beliefs weren't true. Maybe we haven't actually figured this stuff out. We were just coming off of this high where it felt that way. And now we're actually going to have to challenge a lot of those assumptions and institutions and try to refigure things out again. One thing I felt was missing from the book was it suggested the cycle just takes place in the same spot. So you just kind of go, there's no visual for this. It's going to be audio. So imagine myself drawing a circle in the air and you're just like riding over that same circle repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. If I was going to draw a graphic of it, I would actually draw it like there's a line moving up 
and yes. you have circles that are like gradually moving up with that line. Same. Uh, yeah, Dalio's yeah. short and long-term debt cycle is a good analogy yes. here. Yeah. yeah. We can drop a visual in the notes, but totally. yeah, yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. All right. I do have to hop off in a minute here, boys, but this is fun. a great time. This was awesome. This is awesome. So, it was like half tangents, half book. A deal did yeah. not do as good of a job keeping us on track, but it was fun. <laughs> it was better. All right. So uh, obviously pick up fourth turning. Uh, the yep. next book that we'll be doing is Man and His Symbols, right, Neil? Yep. And then a deal then, the next one uh, you're joining for is Seeing Like a State. Like a state. Yeah. Cool. So got that. All right. We're also going to do Alchemy of Finance at some point. So if anybody wants to read that by Soros, you can check that out. Be sure to leave us a nice review anywhere and everywhere podcasts are sold. Uh, you can say hi to us on Twitter. I'm at Nat Eliason. I'm at the real Neil S. I'm at Adil Majid. And oh, yeah, if you're on Foundation, you can send us some sats. Fountain. 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 Sorry. Yeah, I always mix that up. From Fountain, you can send us some sats because dollars are going to be worthless by the time this airs. <laughs> <laughs> I love when I get that reaction from you, Adil. That's <laughs> the full turn of my head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the no, number of degrees Adil turns around in his chair is how I know. <laughs> uh, any, anything else? Yeah, I guess related episodes to this one that might be interesting are uh, sovereign individual. That was the crypto episode back in 2017, which might be somewhat interesting related to this as well. What else? I think those are probably the two most relevant. Yeah, and then of course, Dictator's Handbook, maybe. Yeah, Dictator's Handbook, maybe Denial of Death. That was. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. another good one. Yep. I, it's so funny. We're at the point now where I just can't remember most of the books that we've done. I have to go back and look <laughs> at the website. We're not even at 100 yet. We're not even oh, at 100 yet. <laughs> I know. Law, uh, Scale by Joffrey West. That'd be a good one. Yeah. Um, yeah, just go listen through all of them if you haven't yet. It's it's a good yeah. it's a good catalog. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. It's pretty good. <laughs> oh, and if you want more of a deal, you can also check out our Sapiens series. There's three episodes there, so that's another good one to listen to. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think right. that just about does it. Cheers, guys. Cheers. See you next time.